0: Back into the book of Exodus, and after meeting with Pharaoh for the first time, Moses and Aaron were feeling discouraged, for you see, Pharaoh had responded with incredulity to their request that the Israelites be allowed to journey into the wilderness for around a week to worship the Lord. In fact, Pharaoh sought to teach them a lesson and ordered the Israelites to meet a productivity standard that was impossible. Instead of hope and freedom, everything got worse. But in our last message, we read God's incredible response to Moses. When Moses went to him and said, Lord, everything's gotten worse. Let's take a look at God's response again just to refresh our memories. We'll begin in Exodus 6-1. We'll just read through it. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, or Adonai, or the unpronounceable name of God, YHWH, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers, and I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So God says, Moses, tell the people I'm with them. Tell them I've got this, I'll take care of it. Tell them they've got a promise from me that they can take to the bank. Tell them all they gotta do is stand firm in faith and hang in there while I do my thing. And we talked about how that's still true for us today. Whatever bondage or difficulty or problem or challenge we're facing, God's word gives us promises that he's with us and will do good for us in every situation. All we have to do is stand firm in faith and hold on to those promises. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? It sounds so easy. So why don't we all do that every time we face a challenge? We'll take a look at verse nine. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. In other words, Moses told the Israelites everything God had just told them. That same pep talk, that same faith talk, but they did not heed Moses. And then underline this, because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You see, they heard Moses, but they didn't hear Moses. They didn't receive or take in what he was saying because their spirits were broken and in anguish from the difficulty of their circumstance. And the same thing happens to us very, very easily. We find ourselves in a a difficult circumstance and we become so focused on our situation that we don't even hear the encouragements that our brothers and sisters share with us. We don't even hear the message even when we're in church. We can't see God's promises even as we read them in his word and we say, well, I don't know about these I will do it promises of God. I don't know if they're true, maybe for some people, but, but not for me, or, or apparently not in this situation, not in this circumstance. And our anguish, our, our broken spirit, the snapping of the whips, the, the weight of the burden on our back seems so much more real and present than the promises of God. So what's the solution? Well, I want you to note the difference between Moses and the Israelites in their response. You see, Moses, we, we learned last time in our study, he had anguish of spirit too. He, he was wrestling with things like, have I come back to Egypt 40 years later just to fail again? I've, I've made everything worse. The Israelites don't want me as their leader now. They, they think I'm just here to mess everything up more. They're not buying into it. They're not buying into me at all. Moses had anguish of spirit, but in his anguish he cried out to the Lord he went to God and he poured out his frustrations his fears his anxiety and this is something we'll see Moses do over and over and over again it's just who he was and so if you're in that place of spiritual numbness is the best way I can describe it because your spirit is just in so much anguish over your current situation it's not easy but it's very simple Cry out to the Lord. Pour out your heart in honesty to him over and over and over again, day after day, however much it takes. Would you write this down and we'll talk some more about this. A spirit in anguish can become numb unless it is poured out to the Lord. A spirit in anguish can become numb unless it is poured out to the Lord. You can find yourself in that place of numbness not because you don't, don't love the Lord, but because you're just so discouraged that you just can't hear any encouragement that's being offered to you. That's gotta be poured out to the Lord. And here's an incredible encouragement for you and I. Despite their lack of faith and their lack of enthusiasm, despite their failure to appropriate and stand on the promises of God, the Lord still gets Israel out of Egypt. He still works miracles on their behalf. He still makes a way for them to be set free. He still delivers them. He still gets them to the promised land. And if you're a believer who's walked with the Lord for a few years, then you know that that's just how the Lord is. He's good. He's gracious. It's just who he is. And this is why, I've, I've said this more than once, but the older I get, the more my favorite verse becomes 2 Timothy 2.13, because I found it to be true in my old life far more times than I'd care to admit. It's just the verse that says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. I feel like if my life had a theme verse, that would be it. Even if I'm faithless, he remains faithful. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're gonna make it to heaven. You're gonna make it to heaven. That's a done deal. But you can either go celebrating, or you can go depressed. Either way, you're gonna get there. You're gonna get there. This isn't about whether or not God will be faithful. This isn't about whether or not he will do something good in and out of the difficulty that you're going through. This is about how you're gonna go through what you're going through. What your mindset's gonna be like, what your heart's gonna be like as you go through this. You can go through it depressed, full of anxiety and spiritual anguish and misery or you can go through it full of the supernatural peace of God, that peace that passes understanding with a confident faith in his goodness. And to state the obvious, life is a whole lot better when you go through it in the latter condition. God's gonna be faithful. He's gonna be faithful. Always has been, always will. He'll get you through. He'll get you to the other side. You will come out of the valley that you're in. That's an absolute guarantee. The only question is, what your journey is gonna be like. Is it gonna be full of misery and anxiety and depression? Or is it gonna be full of the supernatural peace of God? That part is up to you. It's up to me. And never forget this either. If you wanna bless God, if you wanna be a blessing to your heavenly father, you know, maybe, maybe you've sung the words or thought the words, oh, what can I give back to God for all the good he's done to me? Let me tell you what you can give back to him. Be a person of faith. Be a person of faith because that blesses your heavenly Father. When we live confident in the goodness of God, it shows the world around us that we believe we have a Father in heaven who loves us and who takes care of us. And that blesses the heart of our Father when he says, you get it, you get it, that I'm with you, that I'm not gonna leave you, that I'm gonna take care of you. That blesses him. Now what do you do when you encounter another believer? who's in this place of, of spiritual numbness, as the Israelites were, someone who's just not excited, just not encouraged when you talk with them and share scripture with them, and you're like, hey, hold on to this promise. God told me this is a promise for you, and they're like, oh, that's nice. That's a good one. What, what do you do when you share scripture with them but they, they just can't hear it? Because their spirit is in too much anguish and cruel bondage i say don't lecture them, don't lecture them, don't tell them to check their heart. Pray for them, intercede for them. Don't be offended by them, go on the offense for them. Remember what Jesus told his disciples. Jesus said, I put it on your outlines, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that means that the power of heaven is behind us when we pray for the will of heaven to be done on the earth. So we bind up the things that we know that heaven doesn't want holding down the believer. We bind up discouragement, depression, anxiety in Jesus' name, and we loose the things that we know heaven wants for the believer. Faith, hope, trust in God strength and we keep praying for them for how long for as long as it takes as long as it takes remember what jesus said as well literally if you look at the original translation he says keep asking and it'll be given to you keep seeking and you will find keep knocking and it will be opened to you scripture tells us that jesus is interceding for us right now he's praying for us for all of our shortcomings. And his desire is that we would intercede for one another when one of us is overcome by spiritual anguish. That we would stand the gap for each other. So write this down. When a brother or sister is overcome by spiritual anguish, pray slash intercede for them. Pray and intercede for them. And understand that that's a real thing. Sometimes somebody's not in rebellion. Sometimes it's not that they just have a bad attitude. Sometimes they're just so overwhelmed by despair. So overwhelmed by despair, they just can't hear the truth in that moment. And they need a touch from the grace and power of God. So pray for them. Pray that they would receive that. Into verse 10 we read, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of his land. So God says, go back Moses, tell Pharaoh the same thing again, tell him to let my people go. And Moses has to be thinking, "Uh, I don't know if you saw, but it didn't actually go so well the first time. Uh, Last time we did it, he just loaded them up with greater burdens and started beating all of them and all of them ended up hating me. So Now you want me to go back and and tell Pharaoh the same thing, that same Pharaoh who was super angry last time? Cool, guess it's just my time to die. Which is probably why Moses goes back to making excuses again in verse 12, where we read, and Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And the original language there just means I'm one who doesn't speak well. So he's saying, listen, my own people won't listen to me. Why in the world do you think Pharaoh's gonna listen to me? Verse 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. So once again, Aaron becomes a concession that God makes to Moses and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The implication is that Aaron is once again gonna do the speaking on Moses's behalf. Moses says, I can't, can't speak, he's not going to listen to me. God says, well go anyway and I'll have Aaron do the talking. Now we get to the family trees, the, the lineage of Moses and Aaron and this is just recorded to demonstrate that Moses and Aaron were real, literal people. This is the Bible doing everything it possibly can in a historical account to make it clear that these were real people and these were real historical events. It's saying here's the family tree to prove it. So I'm going to skip over some verses here and move through this pretty quick. I'm sure there's some Bible teacher somewhere who's discovered some incredibly profound thing. I am not that Bible teacher this time around. So we'll just take a look at verse 16. It says, these are the names of the son of sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And just one quick note of interest, Moses and Aaron both would come from the line of the third son of Jacob, Levi. Do you know why? Had the right genes. That's right. Super important, make a note of that. Most commentaries won't mention that, but it's, it's important. And then... Uh, we just see in verse 18, and the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And so they would come through the line of Amram. In verse 20, we read now, Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Does anybody else, when you read that Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, I just hear a banjo playing in my head for some reason as I read that. It's very, very redneck, and and I just want to acknowledge, yes, this is totally weird by today's standards, but Amram married his paternal aunt back then, and that's a whole other study as to why that didn't result in deformities and all kinds of stuff like that, but stuff was different back then. It's not okay for you to marry your aunt if you're single and wondering, okay? We're listening to this online. Then we'll jump to verse 23, Aaron took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. These are the four sons of Aaron and they're going to come into play in a big way later on in the Exodus story. Then jump to verse 25, Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife and she bore him Phinehas. So I'm just going to mention something here because Phinehas is actually an Egyptian name. It's an Egyptian name. It has a Hebrew almost identical equivalent, but an equivalent, but in this instance, it's an Egyptian name, which means the Nubian or the Dark-skinned one. And I only point that out to just remind us that there were men and women who joined the nation of Israel from outside the nation of Israel. And God welcomed that. All that God cared about was, hey, you want to become part of the nation of Israel? You've got to worship only me. You've got to worship only Yahweh. You've got to be circumcised if you're a man. If you're a single woman, you've got to marry only a person who's a member of the nation of Israel, another circumcised man. That's what you've got to do. That's all God cared about. You want to become part of the nation? That's awesome. And so when Israel eventually leaves Egypt, there's going to be a mix of people in the nation of Israel, a mix of ethnicities in the nation of Israel because Egypt, even at this time, you've got to think about sort of where it is, it's still very much at the crux of all kinds of ethnic groups. It's the center of the world of trade, of everything like that, and so there's a lot more people than if you're thinking just white or slightly tan Jews in the nation of Israel. There's a lot more ethnic diversity than that in reality. Then we'll jump to verse 26 and it says, these are the same, again, it's just reinforcing here, these are real people. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. Are you getting the point? The Bible wants us to understand these are real, literal, actual people. This is not mythology, this is history. And then in verse 28, we go on. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, again, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? He's not going to listen to me. Just continuing into, ver- into chapter 7. So the Lord said to Moses, "'See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, "'and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet.'" Say, Moses, you're gonna represent me to Pharaoh, and Aaron is going to speak on your behalf. Verse two, "'You shall speak all that I command you, "'and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh "'to send the children of Israel out of his land.'" And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, again, future tense, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them." I'm gonna use Pharaoh's stubbornness to reveal my power and my glory to the world. And that's what the Exodus story is really about. It's not about Moses or the Israelites, it's about God. Just as the star of the gospel is not us, it's Jesus. It's all about his goodness, his glory, his power, and that's what God is saying right here. And you know what? It worked, because here we are today in Canada, thousands of years later, reading about it. And even when the Israelites eventually march into the promised land about 40 years from this time and they reach Jericho, those of you who know this story will remember that Rahab basically says, we've heard about you guys. Word has spread. We've heard about what your God did in Egypt, what he did to the Egyptians, and, and we know we don't stand a chance. And it's worth noting a couple of other things just from the section we read. God's plan, r- really get this. God's plan, the plan that God came up with, included some temporary discomfort and suffering for his people. So let's never buy into the the heresy that God's people aren't ever meant to go through suffering or trials in life. It's simply not true, and we have an absolute demonstration of that right here. And what is supposed to comfort the believer, the way God talks to Moses, the way he talks talks to the Israelites, it's clear that from God's perspective, it's supposed to comfort them and us to know that our pain and our suffering is part of God's plan to accomplish his will on the earth and bring him glory. That's supposed to bring us comfort. There's meaning in it. God is doing something. He's going to ultimately do good for us. We're gonna end up in a good place one way or another. But on this journey, as we go through difficulty, we're supposed to actually find comfort in understanding that we're part of God's plan. He's doing something here, even when it's difficult. That means that we're actually supposed to love God more than our own comfort. We're actually to find more gratification in God being glorified than us being comfortable. And that's a little more complicated than most of us would want to admit because it's very easy for us to tune into the part, oh man, I I like the part where I get taken care of and I'm comfortable and and, and everything's good and and God has a good plan, I like that. But we don't like the part where it says, well, you know, God uses our suffering for his glory, but but there's always a happy ending, right? Yes, yes, but, but sometimes not even in this life. Sometimes the happy ending is in the next life. And the hope of the Christian is in knowing that there is a happy ending, one way or another. But we're supposed to be comforted by understanding that there's meaning in our suffering. There's meaning in our pain. And it doesn't mean God has abandoned us or that he doesn't love us. It just means that that's sometimes how God works. And I'll explain a little bit more about why that is. And it's this, secondly, God wanted the Egyptians to come to know him too. Did you pick that up from what God said? God wanted Egypt, he wanted the world to have a revelation of his glory so that they too would be set free from their spiritual blindness and see that he is the Lord. Our testimony, our testimony to God's goodness is infinitely more powerful when we're going through difficulties than when everything is easy. When we have peace in the midst of turmoil, That's powerful, that's a witness. The world doesn't relate to a person who has no problems, no challenges. They might envy that person, but they certainly don't see themselves in that person. They don't look at them and think, wow, that that could be me. But when they see us go through the kinds of things that they go through and still have peace, still have joy, still have a life that holds together, well, well, then the world pays attention. People who don't know the Lord but know you, they, they pay attention. I always remember like, uh, I think I, w- I was 16, I was just reading a magazine, it was like a People magazine or something in a doctor's office and there's an article there about how, how Oprah had uh, just reached a million dollars, a billion dollars in, in personal net worth and in the article she's saying, you know, and, and have, the great thing about my life right now is I just have this real sense of peace and I remember thinking, Well, a billion dollars will help with that, you know, a little bit. It's not exactly a powerful witness, you know, if we were to say, well, here's the thing, Lord. Why don't you just give me a fat bank account, all my bills paid, no health difficulties, no sickness, no problems in the marriage, no difficulties in the family. Because nobody's going to look at you and go, wow, how do you manage to have inner peace, Teach me, despite all the challenges in your life, somehow you've triumphed. Nobody's impressed by that, nobody. It's when they look at your life and they say, hey, hey, you're going through some of the challenges I'm, I'm going through with my kids, you're going through that with your kids too. You're, you're going through some difficulties in, in your marriage, some communication issues, you're having a hard time at work too, but, but it's not breaking you the way it's breaking me. My life is falling apart, I'm falling apart, but you're not, why is that? The testimony is different when there's difficulty involved. And from God's perspective, knowing that, we're supposed to love the Lord enough that we say, hey, hey, Lord, listen, if it brings you attention and glory, I'm in, I'm in. Do what you need to do. Your name be glorified. That's what it means to to really love the name of Jesus, to be a real disciple who follows after Jesus. Our day is coming. It is coming, we're going to heaven, and so if we need to go through, through some things to bring attention to God, then we're glad to do it because God doesn't exist for us, we exist for him. We exist for him. So write this down. God's plan to reveal himself to the world included temporary suffering for his people. Still does. God's plan to reveal himself to the world included temporary suffering for his people. Now we're gonna switch gears completely and on a totally different note, now's about the time in our study on the book of Exodus when I need to make you aware that Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt is also a prophetic pattern of how they will be delivered from bondage in the end times, how Israel will be delivered from bondage in the end times, specifically in the tribulation. And this is actually in the text, in case you were like, Jeff, are you just getting that N times itch again and looking for stuff? No, it's actually in the text, I'll show you, although I wouldn't blame you for thinking that. If you don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the tribulation, I apologize, but there's literally no way to quickly bring you up to speed on that. You just need to go listen to our Revelation series and then come back and listen to this part of the message again. So I'm going to have to proceed as though you have some sort of understanding about Revelation and the end times. These verses are going to be on your outline as I mentioned them. In Revelation 17, 17, an angel is speaking to John the apostle about what's going on in the tribulation and he tells John this. He says, for God has put it into their hearts, into the hearts of the enemies of God, to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. In the tribulation, the rise of Antichrist and the false prophet and and all those who follow them is going to be a part of God's plan for his glory. So too, the rise of Egypt to become the most powerful nation in the world and this specific Pharaoh were part of God's plan for his glory. In Exodus, Israel is being oppressed and persecuted by Egypt who is a picture of the world and in the tribulation, Israel will be oppressed and persecuted by Antichrist and the world that will follow him. In Exodus, the Israelites cry out to God in desperation for deliverance and God hears their cry In the tribulation, the same thing will happen. In Exodus, Moses and Aaron testify to God's will and work on the earth, and in the tribulation, there will be two witnesses who will be doing the same thing. And you know, I believe those two witnesses will actually be Moses and Elijah. God puts pressure on Egypt and Pharaoh by sending plagues. God is going to put pressure on Antichrist and the world by sending judgments that will bear a striking resemblance to the plagues of Egypt. And we'll talk more about those parallels when we get into the plagues next week. That's just a little bit to get your mind thinking about these parallels and beginning to look for them and see them in the text. Verse six, then Moses and Aaron did so, underline this, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. Just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. So understand what's going on here, though. Moses is discouraged. So he goes to the Lord, pours out his heart. God speaks to Moses, builds back up his faith. Moses is encouraged. Moses goes to the Israelites and says, guys, listen, I just had the most amazing time with the Lord. Let me just share with you some of the promises of God. He pours out his heart and he says, isn't this amazing, guys? And they're like... Moses is discouraged again. We know from what Moses says, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to go back to Pharaoh. Is Moses scared and nervous? Absolutely. Absolutely. But here's another insight into what made Moses great. This is such a huge practical point for Christian living. Despite all the stuff I just said, despite the fact we know he's discouraged in this moment, we know he's nervous and scared. We read that Moses obeyed God and did what the Lord told him to do. Now hang with me here. There's never been a time in human history when feelings have been more elevated than they are right now, never. We're in a culture where our feelings are being exalted and magnified and viewed as more important than almost anything. Including science, biology, logic, reason, anything. And when that mentality begins to creep into our faith, when it creeps into our relationship with the Lord, the belief that feelings are more important than anything, it's devastating because it causes us to reject the truth of the Word of God in favor of our feelings. And when the two are in conflict, we demand that the Word of God bow down to our feelings. And we elevate our feelings as the greater truth than the word of God. It, it's devastating. And I don't know if you know this, but our feelings often don't tell us the truth. I hope you've figured that out by now. They do not tell us the truth. And so if you're not feeling it in your walk with the Lord right now, obey him anyway. Obey him anyway because he will bless you And because it's a demonstration of faith, let me tell you why. It's saying, even though my emotions are not on board with my faith right now, I know that God's word is true, and I can still control my actions. And so I'm going to align my actions with God's word, even when my feelings aren't in alignment with God's word. And that is one of the major, major differences between a juvenile faith and a mature faith. It's one of the differences. The immature Christian, when when the feelings are not on board, the actions change. The actions change. What's the point in doing this? I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel close to the Lord. Why should I do the things the Lord tells me to do? That's the immature believer. The mature believer says, listen, I don't feel close to God right now. But here's what I know. His word is true whether I feel close to him or not. His promises are true, regardless of what I see with my eyes right now and how my mind is interpreting what I see. I know these things, so I will continue to walk, I will continue to align my actions and my life based on what I know, not on what I feel. That's what a mature faith looks like. Write this down. A mature faith understands the wisdom of aligning one's actions with God's word even if one's feelings are not. A mature faith understands the wisdom of aligning one's actions with God's word even if one's feelings are not and that is what Moses and Aaron are doing in this instance. Moses is horrendously discouraged but he still does everything the Lord told him to do exactly the way the Lord told him to do it. Then we read in verse seven that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Maybe that's what got Moses through it. He's just so old, he just doesn't care at that point. He's like, all right, fine, I'll go back. I'm 83 anyway, what else am I gonna do? So verse eight, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, show a miracle for yourselves, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. And you might recall, this is one of the signs that God told Moses to perform for the Israelites to prove that he and Aaron had been sent by God. And here God tells them to repeat the sign for Pharaoh. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. Would you underline again, just as the Lord commanded. That's the key and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. At this point, Moses has to be like, cool, cool, cool. Everything going according to plan. Awesome, everything's cool. Then verse 11, but Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Pharaoh's not impressed. He says, cool trick, bro. I got guys who can do that too. That's no biggie. And Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. You gotta understand all the wording is the exact same in the original Hebrew. And I point that out because there's some people who will say, well, you know, they were probably doing a sleight of hand sort of thing. They're not. They're doing real magic. What they're doing is supernaturally empowered just as surely as what Moses and Aaron are doing is supernaturally empowered. The difference is that the Egyptians are empowered by Satan through occultic magic which was widespread in Egypt at the time and heavily integrated into their society. They're using, we're even told, enchantments is what they're doing. The Bible tells us that when Antichrist and the false prophet come on the scene, they'll perform miracles not tricks, not sleight of hand, real miracles. And just like these magicians, their miracles will be empowered by Satan. It tells us that Antichrist is even going to rise from the dead after an assassination attempt. And speaking of this coming time, the end times, the tribulation, Jesus said this, it should be on your outlines. He said, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show, check this out, great signs and wonders to deceive. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says, the coming of the lawless one, that's a title for antichrist, is according to the working of Satan. It's empowered by Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. And I gotta take this opportunity to remind us that it's crucial we understand that Satan can perform miracles. Why do I say that's so important? Because if you don't understand that, you can be deceived into thinking that any supernatural miracle must come from God. And when Christians begin to believe that only God can do real miracles, then they end up following signs and wonders, seeking out signs and wonders instead of seeking the Lord. The Bible says signs and wonders will follow all who believe. It doesn't say that those who believe should follow signs and wonders. We're supposed to follow Jesus, Signs and wonders happen along the way. Christians get deceived all the time because they think, well, well, this, this ministry, this place, uh, I mean, they're doing signs and wonders, so it must be legit. Sure, I hear rumors that this guy is sleeping with his interns, and what he's doing sure doesn't look Christ-like on stage, but he's doing miracles, so clearly God's in it. And that might sound ridiculous, but there are thousands and thousands of Christians who fall for that. They know in their spirit something is amiss, but they justify this person's ministry. They justify their sinful actions by saying, but listen, they wouldn't be able to do these things if God wasn't in it. Sure they can. The Egyptians are doing it right here. Antichrist is gonna do it. There's a long line of people. There's people all over the world right now who are probably doing miracles that are empowered by Satan. The way you discern whether God is in something is not by whether or not it's miraculous. It's by who gets the glory. That's how you discern the difference. Bible tells us that nobody who doesn't belong to Jesus is going to stand up there or can stand up there saying, this isn't me doing this, this is the power of God, all glory to Jesus, give the praise and attention to him. They're not gonna do that if this is not of God. If all the glory goes to God, if it makes people love Jesus more, worship Jesus more, and puts the spotlight on him, then it's legitimate. But if the attention goes to anybody or anything else, man, have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. I don't care if they've got a cross on the door or on the back wall. If the attention and honor doesn't go to Jesus, if it goes to somebody or something else, just don't have anything to do with it. Well, back to the end of verse 12, we read, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. To make the obvious point that God's power is greater, Aaron's snake just looks at these other snakes and just chomp, 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 eats them, eats them, and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, just like a video game snake in real life happening on the floor of Pharaoh's court right there. Verse 13, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them. He didn't listen to Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh sees this evidence for God's superior power. He sees it, but he just he dismisses it. In the tribulation, Antichrist and the false prophet will perform signs and wonders, miracles, but as we just read, God is going to completely upstage Antichrist by performing far greater signs and wonders during the tribulation. But just like Pharaoh and his followers, Those who follow Antichrist will harden their hearts in the face of overwhelming evidence. And just as the Egyptians said, well, Pharaoh's our God, most on the earth will say the same thing about Antichrist in the tribulation. Remember what it says in Revelation six about the response of people to God's miracles during the tribulation, it's on your outlines. It says, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. They see the evidence. They're running for their lives from the evidence. The evidence is falling from the sky, literally, but they won't repent. They'll harden their hearts and risk death rather than turn to the Lord. And then in Revelation 9, it says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And so you gotta understand this too. In, in both Exodus and in the tribulation, in both instances, Israel is delivered. Israel is delivered. Because as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will, future tense, will be saved. And Paul actually links these things together for us in 2 Timothy 3. Again, in case you think I'm just being speculatory here, Paul actually does the linking. He writes about the attitudes and behaviors that are going to get worse in the last days. And he says this, again, on your outlines. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so here's where Paul links it, he actually tells us the names of these two magicians in Pharaoh's court who matched the staff into a serpent miracle, meaning that their names were likely passed down in Jewish tradition because they're not recorded in the Old Testament. Paul says, just as they resisted Moses in the last days, so do these also resist the truth men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly, their foolishness will be manifest to all. It will be obvious to everyone, as theirs, Jonas and Brez's, also was. So Paul says that the magicians in Pharaoh's court displayed the same attitudes, the same hard-heartedness that will define people in the last days. Just as Jonas and Jambres will end up looking really foolish, so too those who harden their hearts against the Lord in the tribulation will end up looking very, very foolish. And we're going to see these parallels continue to unfold as we work our way through the Exodus account. Well, let me just say this in closing, and we'll, we'll pray, we'll worship, we'll do communion, and then we'll just break into groups and pray together for a couple of minutes at the end. We need to be people who pray. We need to be people who pray. And I don't mean this as, as a resolution, but I mean we have to be people who make a conscious decision that we're going to be people who pray. People who refuse to stay in a state of spiritual numbness, even when life is difficult who care enough about being close to the Lord to pour out our hearts to the Lord, even when life is difficult. To be Christians who say, I I can't stay here in this place of numbness, in in a place of indifference. I can't allow myself to stay here. And so if you're in spiritual anguish, even now, do what Moses did. Take it to the Lord. Just tell him where you're at. Pour out your heart to him. He's the best listener in the world. He'll wait for you to finish, and then he'll begin to minister to you. But don't stay where you are if you're in that place of numbness, that place of spiritual anguish. People are praying for you. I'm sure they are. But you're going to have to make the choice to draw near to the Lord. He's drawing near to you, but you're going to have to make the choice to take a step and not expect that you're just going to wake up one day and suddenly everything's going to be different. Suddenly you're gonna feel close to the Lord. You, you've gotta take that step, so do that today. And if you know a believer who's in spiritual anguish, who just can't hear the encouragement you're trying to share with them, just pray for them. Don't get mad at them. Don't get mad at them. They're being overcome by a circumstance right now. So lift them up in prayer. Stand in the gap for them. If your feelings aren't lining up with God's word, Choose to align your actions with his word anyway. You'll reap a good harvest. The God is still going to bless you. It's a wise way to live and understand that part of Christian maturity is understanding that, that our emotions do this all the time, all the time. I didn't get enough sleep. I got a great amount of sleep. Too much pizza, just the right amount of pizza. You know, Our emotions go up and down all the time, all the time. Always think about that. There's so many times where we think, Lord, what's going on? And God's like, you need a nap. You need a nap. You need to eat something. You're hangry, you know. That's all that's going on. You cannot trust your emotions. You can trust the word of God. You can trust his promises. Always, always, always. So never let the fact that you and I do this emotionally cause your devotion to God to do the same thing. Choose to act and live and align your actions with the Word of God, even if your feelings are all over the place. It's the most profitable way to live. It's profitable. So, with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, Father? Thank you so much for the the wisdom of your Word. Thank you for the practical help of your Word. That we know we're going to get to heaven. We're going to be with you. Everything's going to be wonderful. It's going to be a a glorious ending to our earthly life. It's gonna be incredible. But Lord, we also recognize and know that we have a choice about how we go through this life. We know that suffering is part of the deal. And Lord, we can't even complain when we think about what you went through so that we could be part of your family. Suffering was, was more than a part of that. And you gave more and went so much further than you've asked any of us to in our suffering. And so Father, we, we first of all, we, we just pray that, that you would give us a heart so in love with you and so passionate for your glory and your fame that we would genuinely be comforted. We would find relief and hope in knowing that you are using our hardships and sufferings for your glory, that you're imbuing them with purpose and meaning. And Lord, give us hearts if we don't have them that, that can genuinely say, Lord, if it's for your glory, I'm in. If it brings you even just a little bit more attention, I'm in. If it causes someone to look at you with adoration, I'm in. If it testifies to your goodness, I'm in, Lord. Whatever it costs me, I'm in. Father, we know that that's just part of the deal. And we recognize that we've got a choice how we go through this life. We can go through it full of depression and anxiety and worry and fear and discouragement. Or or we can choose to continually lay those burdens at your feet. To cast our cares upon you because you care for us. As your word says, and, and receive afresh every day your peace, your hope. The kind of joy that isn't defined by circumstances. And so, Father, I do pray right now for any of us in this room who are discouraged. Even now, Lord, would you begin to fill lives with fresh hope and fresh peace and fresh faith. And would you stir us to lay our burdens at your feet. To be encouraged and ministered to by your spirit, Lord God. And Father, bring to our minds those that we need to be praying for. Help us to stand the gap for them as you stood the gap for us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that, and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now, so stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca, and click on The Gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it.